else you know is built around that you have to make a decision for the client you know be it welding fume wood dust flower dust whatever it is it's there to to bring it down to a satisfactory level that is in accordance with their risk assessment yes absolutely i think it goes back to the two the point is you know a system can still be you know and if you look at a say a wood dust system or something like, that, like a something like a band resaw you know you can you can if somebody's using that wearing rpe there's some lev can only get down to a, a reasonable level you know in the process and they need additional points and it's the same you know the the flip side of that as well i just is is the the pass or the fail sits quite uncomfortably with me sometimes when you're you're trying to give a, the the customer a report, but it's all they look at is the the pass or the fail, and Which leads know, the, Kenneth, the recommendations Kenneth. for how they how they you know continually improve their controls I think is is sometimes lost. As an industry, are we missing the point here somewhat? We're, we're there looking at one element of the control. Um, package in the LEV when really what the customer needs and what they require is some sort of, someone to check that they have control of the hazardous substance and that could be a, a number of things to provide control whether it be RP, LEV, general ventilation, good working practice, user training. Should we not be developing the role of the LEV assessor um, into something, I don't know, control assessor or hazardous substance or environment control assessor. But does this not go back to the commissioning, Adrian, to say, right, well, this this LEV unit yeah. is working in conjunction with these other control measures? Mark, it goes back further than that. It goes back to design. That's, yeah, back that's to back to caveat the LEV report, that's though, isn't it? Saying it goes back to risk assessment. But how often do you get a risk assessment from customers? You know, good blue chip customers don't want to have risk assessments. Um, then you so, can't pass a system. You, you, you know, that would definitely be a. If there's no risk assessment, they haven't identified the hazardous substance. That's it. You, you can't go. How can you determine it's providing control if you don't know what it's controlling? There you go. Yeah. It's failed. I don't need to leave the office for that one. Yeah. So, how often do we see that? So what? What I'm. What I'm saying is, okay. If these people need help, we're going to save lives. Do we need to go any step further instead of going in there with blinkers on and just looking at the LEV? Do we need to go in there and look at the environment and say we're going to assess the control of the environment here, not just that thing that sucks air out the room? And this is back to what Catherine was on about to start with. It's the occupational hygienist versus the LEV tester, isn't it? Yeah. I think what we've done here is we've written off the job of a LEV tester and what we now need is a Koshreg 7 tester. Yeah. <laughs> but what you can do, what you can do is if you're um, uh, an LEV tester and you have issues, you can say that one of the recommendations that you would make is that the risk assessment should be reviewed in light of your findings. That I think I'm much out. more comfortable with that. I think, to, I think we try to take on too much responsibility sometimes. I think we have to try to go back. It would be good if we had something that, you know, some kind of generic document or something we could maybe use that might be something we could develop um, and share but just something that we can take back to the client to say you know back to fundamental principles you know you, you need to do this um, it's not necessarily something every LEV tester is going to be able to offer because their company might not have posh people or risk assessors or occupational hygienists but the companies do need to understand what it is that they're responsible for and they do need to do a proper risk assessment and we don't always see that. Um, ATEX is another great example of this I think. It is, it is, yeah. We're expected more and more to comment on ATEX related issues on an LEV test. Um, yeah, and I think that, that, that that's highlights exactly what we're saying. And that's going to become more so as Bill says, when they review COSH and COSH and DESIR become amalgamated, it will be you know, what is the, the desire element will have to be commented on in the same report. So that's not going to go away. That's only going to get um, become more and more of an issue. So as, as assessors of these systems, 
we need to we need to be picking up on that. We need to be becoming competent in that. I think this, this I, is I think what, um, just as, as Adrian says, um, I think you're absolutely right that these LED testers do need to be occupational hygienists to properly test the system. So if we just work that forward and let's just say every single LED tester in the country now is this occupational hygienist who can fully assess the system. We've just fully assessed every single LED system in the country. Now are we going to pay the levels of an occupational hygienist to go back and reassess the system that you can send someone with confidence? I know that that system, you know, is able to control. All I need is somebody who can go and take some flow measurements and record them, do some visual assessments, compare against our initial intended data and check against the commissioning document. And then all of a sudden we've got all of these people that are competently occupational hygienists that we don't need anymore. We just need these systems fully commissioned properly and LEV testers to be able to do an LEV tester job, which is just to go and assess the system against a risk assessment and a, and a commissioning data. The, the problem is we don't have the risk assessments and we don't have the commissioning data. And it's kind of like how to work that. It is the answer to get every single LEV tester in the country to a, lev a level where they can commission a system. Because to me, if it's commissioned and commissioned and we've collected the data and we know it works properly, we just need to check it against that initial initial commissioning. And then all of a sudden it's not the task it was. It's not a commissioning task, it's a retest task. So then we need our LEV testers again and not occupational hygienists. So I don't I'm not promoting that LEV assessors become hygienists. They need a good understanding of occupational hygiene. So they need more than what they get on a P601 course. Okay, so uh, let's, I'm not looking for a, every person who tests LEV to be an occupational hygienist. That's not what I'm saying. They're, they're different roles. Mm -hmm. But I think they, uh, someone who assesses LEV must have more of an understanding of occupational hygiene and the effects that poor LEV has on people. Um, going back to the commissioning element, um, we can do a stroll poll, but how many people go and test systems which haven't been commissioned? Or do you say, I'm sorry, I can't test that. It needs to be commissioned first. Because are we not making a rod for our own backs by testing systems that are not commissioned? And we therefore, should we not be then saying, if it hasn't been commissioned, I can commission it for you. And then move forward from there. Because you're right, Hazel. It should just be a simple, testing should be the easiest job in the world. It should be rocking up, looking at the commissioning report, asking if anything's changed, checking the logbook, ticking a few boxes. It should be dead, dead easy. It's not. One of the, it's one of the minefield because of the, the state of the industry. Sorry, Melvin. One of the, sorry, Adrian. One of the problems you find is that most of the um, products that you will be testing or, or devices you will be testing have been supplied based on a product standard and many product standards have no normative requirement to do a commissioning test they have normative requirements to do a type test so that you have a profile of what this product can do but they don't have any normative requirement to actually perform the test on site now i've been arguing for i've lost track of how many years I always say, in my opinion, it should be the other way around. The more important um, place where you need to make sure this device is work is where it's actually being used. So that should be where the normative requirement is. You must do this test on site to make sure that what you've got does the job. Now, when you look at the product standards where they, they, they put their CE marks or the new UK CA mark or the new UK NI mark on, they all stamp these products up as complying with a standard. When you read the document, when it gets to the, the test on site, there will be a tiny short paragraph that says, we recommend that you test this piece of equipment when it gets to its place of intended use. It, and, and in my opinion, that's where this needs to be beefed up more. We need to get more impetus on making sure that standards for the product contain at least, even if it's an informative, even if it's an informative annex, it contains enough information that somebody understands they need to get this commission before they put it into use. 
I think some of this also depends on what angle you're coming from. You know, from, from my point of view, there's a lot of opportunities in this for businesses uh, to grow and develop. And if that's something that you're interested in, you can end up being an expert in all of these things and be, you know, that can be part of your growth strategy. But not all companies want to do that. Some companies just want to test LEVs or just have a need to test LEVs. My concern is putting too much pressure and too much responsibility on an LEV tester. I do think we need to separate out the roles um, in some ways, and we do need to make sure the clients understand what they're responsible for. And, and well, it's not our responsibility to let them know what they're responsible for. But if we don't ensure that we've got that initial data, um, somebody's got to do it. Uh, either the client's got to take it away and, and get it done uh, with other companies or other contractors, or we've got to do it for them, or we've got to state that it needs doing. Um, but I just, I do feel very uncomfortable about, you know, I think we're here, I think most of us are here because we want to see the sector improve. And I am very uncomfortable about putting a huge amount of responsibility on an LEV tester. I'm not saying that all these things don't need doing, they do but it's not an LEV tester's role to do some of the things that we're talking about. We do need to make sure those things are in place. And I do think it is, sometimes it needs to be some, somebody else's responsibility. No, you come in from the beginning, you have a risk assessment that determines if further controls needed or what controls needed. Then we get things like benchmarking, then we get design, then we get installation, then we get commissioning. Then along comes a tester now, if he hasn't got the previous bits, the risk assessment, the benchmark, the design information or the commissioning information, at least, how can the how can you ask that tester to go and do it other than straightforward system? I don't see that they can. And that's the issue we have now. So actually, it's further up the food chain from the LEV tester that we perhaps need to be focusing on. Yeah. yeah. Even before design, Adrian, right through yeah. to risk assessment from the client. Yeah, I think there is a. So it goes back to what said earlier. Is it education? Education of clients. Mm -hmm. I mean, well, we could it be that testers right? ask for the client to provide them with the commissioning data and provide them with a benchmark before they would agree to go to site and perform a test? We all testers ask for those three things and, and say, I can't come to site unless I have those three things sent to me before I, before I um, make an appointment to visit you. We commercial suicide three Melvin. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, that that's what we come back to. If, if 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 we want to if we want to get something done, it's got to be done unilaterally by everybody, mm -hmm. and it won't happen because there'll always be somebody who'll say, "Well, I don't care. I just need that exactly. job. I'm going to go and do the test." That's exactly. It. I I went, yeah. Sorry, I went to a job last week, and I was I was just complete. I was so surprised because the test was only done last stop last August by quite a well-known LEV company, 20 systems, two page reports, all of them by one passed, the one that failed clearly failed. And it, the, the reports were absolutely atrocious. There was hardly any detail. I went to the site and I saw the systems and the, there's no way those, those systems should have passed. And it just sickens me. It just, I just, not you know it, it's just from the you know the, the concern for the workers that are working in those environments um so you will always get that if if you know if there isn't something um kind of, kind of more stringent put in place you will get companies that will just say yes we'll come and do the job and we won't we, you know we're not bothered about seeing all that other stuff i, now, I know that many, i know that many of you have had situations where you've done um, proper testing carried out proper testing you've failed a lot of systems then you find you're not being re-engaged to do that client again and they've simply gone out and engaged someone who will give them the reports two page one page and that gives them a pass and one of one of the things maybe this group can consider how can we cut the leg off these people who will do um, very inappropriate testing at um, silly prices because they're undermining the good work of the better people and i don't know how we can stop it yeah, I'm but just also, thinking, how do we have help us? Sorry. How do I'm we help us? Do we... <laughs> Go on, Hazel. <laughs> I, I, no, I'm just saying on Bill's point, do we need some sort of 
um, something in place to say we need this standard from an LEV test because Catherine's absolutely right. There's too many still out there. That's a couple of pages and the stating that they're passing. So we need to get that clearly out there. There's a big, big problem with this pass fail thing, and we need to put something in place to to um, relieve that. But maybe we get some guidance out there that is saying if there's no cost risk assessment seen, if there's no manual and logbook seen, if there's no commissioning report, it's just a clear fail. Mm -hmm. Why don't we just put that standard in place and then that it cuts that problem out completely? Because how do you pass the system without those documents? And every, maybe every LEV tester, because like Bill said about commercial suicide, there's too many companies out there that are doing LEV testing. We can't just go right bang. We can't do this anymore. An LEV tester can go in and do an LEV test. If he hasn't got manual, he hasn't got a logbook, he hasn't got a commission report, he's not seen um, a risk assessment. You can ask and ask and ask and ask, but you won't get them. Why don't we just make it a standard that you do not do an LEV test without asking for those documents and you cannot pass a system without seeing them? And then it just throws it straight back. And then these companies are forced <coughs> the systems properly commissioned. My only concern is I don't think there's enough people at the level of being able to do commissioning because I'm finding a lot of um, companies saying to me, what shall I do? I want my systems testing to a good standard. I know they're not being tested to a good standard. Where can I go? And to be honest, I'm struggling to tell them where to go. I feel uncomfortable. Standards are out there. Still, to be honest, I feel very uncomfortable because of all these great areas. And I don't know which direction to point these people into. And there's a lot of people coming on courses now that are saying we're coming on the courses because we're struggling to find someone to test our system properly. So we want to learn how to test ourselves. And I'm starting to see quite and then they probably find that that doesn't give them the information that they really no. need. No. <laughs> the, the standards are out there. I leave you. We have the, the, the standardized report form, which asks in the first few questions about commissioning documents and, and risk assessments and um, disease assessments. Um, we have a commissioning guidance document, which is out there. It's freely available to anybody who wants to go and download it. Uh, we've been promoting it for years. We have the competency scheme. We have a competency matrix which talks about all this and covers all this and what people should know. The industry it's doesn't not, Adrian, it's not a question of the information being there. I think it's the uptake. People are just not doing it. I no, think they're not. Um, most people who are doing testing, if you ask for the commission report, I'm guessing 80% of the time there is no commission report. No. And the remainder, when there is a commission report, is very thin. It's a one pager. We had instance recently in the Northeast where somebody that we know is doing one page commission reports. That can't be a commission report. So in many cases, many, many cases, the LEV tester isn't going to have a commission report. No. And quite so often, if that's the case, doesn't the LEV tester have to do um, uh, an initial appraisal, which in effect is retrospective commissioning? It is. Yes. Indeed. Yeah. Absolutely. So, are we doing that? But that's not what HSG 258 states. That's HSG 258 334 says where the information is available, the, the tester should use it. You, being a good lawyer, you can just say if it's not available, that doesn't say I can't test that system. Now, I'm not saying that's right. Because no, no, but I think the point that's being made, um, um, Craig, is that if you go along, let's say a client engages you to, to do routine testing and you take over from a previous contractor that's moved on and you've got the contract. So the contract is to do routine testing and you go in and there's no, there's no um, uh, commissioning report at all. And then you look at the initial and the initial is a two pager. I think you're, it's incumbent upon you to say to the client, we need to do a full thorough initial again, um, because that will, to some extent, take the place of the missing commissioning report. Uh, I mean, years have gone by, so it may not be performing exactly as it was when it was installed, but it's the only thing you can do. And I, and I spoke to HSC about this and said, is that how you view it? And they said, yes, but we want like an initial report plus. And I said, what do you mean plus because initial report is quite important but then they went on to explain one or two other 
uh, things that I thought were a bit picky, but they were talking about physically measuring fan current, um, uh, physically measuring fan speed, um, making sure that when you do dock traverses, you use the equal area method as you would at commissioning, which people don't do at commissioning. So basically, an, an initial thorough examination report, maybe with some some view to what is missing from it, from from what should be in a commissioning report, you know, that's maybe what we should be looking for. And let's face it, a commissioning report, and indeed, if we want to go on what Hazel, Hazel was saying, manuals and logbooks, it's the one bit of HSG 258, and I can tell you it's page 80. It's very detailed, it's bullet pointed of exactly generic, fair enough, but exactly what should be in a commissioning report. So if you look at your initial, and then look at that page 80 for the commissioner report and say, right, what extras do I need to put in that I can put in? Then it would be it would be a sensible approach to take. And you can say that in your initial, saying that this initial has been prepared in the absence of any commissioning data um, and that it can be used, for example, in lieu of it to prepare the manual and logbooks, which will be missing as well. If there's no commission report, there'll almost certainly be no manuals and no logbooks. Well, that's what I mean. And, the, and there's no get out, incidentally, Craig. There's no get out. If the system's been around for 12 years, it still has to have a manual and logbook. Well, that's what I mean. If if HSG you know, guidance document says, yeah. we, if that if information is available, then use it. If not, just make sure, do with what you've got, is basically what HSG yes. 258 says, where it should say, if that information is not available, you cannot do the test. I think there's an acceptance within HSC that HSG 258 is a bit, a little bit beyond its sell-by date. Um, but there's no resources, there's no plans that I'm aware of to review it. I think it really could do with a thorough review. And there's a lot more people, such as the people on this these screens. There's a lot more people now who could give a lot more practical input to a revision of HSG 258. Adrian, maybe that's something I maybe could press is to speak to HSC and say we really think HSG 258 could do with a, a dust off and an overhaul because I think it is, bear in mind it's um, 15 or more years ago when it was um, introduced and we've learned, we've all learned and improved an awful lot since then. I think they need to do a series with HSG 258, so like supporting documents in certain fields like welding, just make it clear once and for all what should designers be doing, what should LEV testers be doing um, to make sure that everything is satisfactory. You're not going to get you're not going to get that, Louise, because now I mean the way forward with HSC is they're not going to give you specifics anymore. It's generalities. Um, they haven't got the resources themselves to either write and more importantly keep these things up to date. There is no will within HSC to do that. Louise, the design of things like welding fume extract systems, they're not difficult. It's not rocket science. Yeah, but we see so many bad systems. The, the problem we have isn't the design of the systems, it's the mis-selling. It's people selling things on the wrong application because it's cheap and easy to do so. Or it's poor buying, people not understanding what they're buying. You know, you. If you look at movable capture hoods, which we all love, they're massive in their, their different variety and the ranges you get from 200 mil hoods, which will give you good control, good suction in a lot of applications, down to 50 mil diameter hoods, um, which Melvin was saying you're using the pharmaceutical and even smaller, can't you get down to sort of 32 mil diameter hoods, which have virtually no capture. <coughs> it's putting the right, right system in the right application. And, and there's an awful lot of mis-selling in the LEV industry. And, you know, how do we stop that? That's, a, that's another conversation in another probably day or two to take up. Um, but that happens. And the people we need to talk to to stop that aren't part of these forums. They're not on these calls. They don't attend the conferences. They don't partake in any of this because they don't want to know. They're too busy out there selling stuff from their catalogs. You can buy stuff on the internet. The issue. Very often I'm, I'm asked to go to a, a project and they say we need our fume cover testing in accordance with EM14175. So I perform the test, but I always make a point of telling them after I've performed the test that all you have now is a list of data on your fume cupboard. It's not a thorough examination 
of your whole fume exhaust system from the fume cupboard to discharge. And I say, you now need to go to get an LEV engineer to do the rest of the check, then give them our report for your fume cupboard, which they can then use as part of their um, thorough examination report. It, yeah, it's I... about people accepting that you may not know everything, but you can contribute to the whole as long as people know where to go and get that advice. Yeah, I've got exactly the same issue uh, at the site that I'm at. Um, and it's exactly what you just said in the fact that, you know, the, the site is not is not compliant in terms of doing a whole thorough examination of the LEV system because there's been there's been lack of knowledge on site. And that the belief is that oh, because they're doing the fume cupboards and, and safety cabinets testing where the users are, that that's been sufficient enough. When that, that's not you're not testing your LEV you're just testing that air capture device and, and that is all you're not testing the whole system from start to finish till it goes out the building yeah it's a brilliant point as well and and another thing where I think a lot of LEV testers get confused because we talk about the British standard of testing and we test as found with the doors and windows closed well yeah with the doors and windows closed we can compare maybe against that um type testing but if they're using it with windows open and they're using it with doors opening and closing your LEV test has to take into account of them because we're testing for control so yeah. we don't want to test with windows and doors closed i'm kind of like we take our measurements with windows and doors closed to compare those measurements against what it should do what it's manufactured to do but the lev test is about the controls so actually we need to know what's happening at the time of the test how is it used do they have windows and doors open closed and, and again i've seen so many lev test reports that just take face velocity readings and they don't look at the um discharge points <coughs> that, that's a, a one of the biggest problems that i've come across I think that comes back to sort of again the LEV test not being done to the standard that they need to be done and there are still a lot out there that are not being tested properly. Stuart what we're, what we're finding on big sites like yours are that the, the test that's been undertaken is yeah. what you've historically been doing for, for the last 20 years and nobody can actually answer why you were doing it that way in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. these big sites and say well we want 10 meters per second at this herd. And you say well why and nobody yeah. can answer that question and um, yeah. engineer that instructed that 20 years ago has left and uh, yeah that, that, left that, legacy issues yeah that's that's kind of exactly what, what i've had to pick up on <laughs> you know i've recently joined there yeah. um, with all this sort of new information and knowledge that's just, just never ever been there and it's just been neglected um because because of a lack of knowledge and like you say there's just there's been no one to question it and and say you know this this is not good enough um and you know hopefully that that will change within the, the coming year that, that that i'll be here on site so and this this comes back to i guess sites like yours are, are, are it's where it highlights the cost assessments and air sampling and and things like that become a lot more prevalent a lot more important yeah, and the, and the only other issues as well that, that um, I've recently found since I've started there is that because of the design of the system, it, it makes it hard to do a complete thorough examination test of the LEV system because the, the whole building is connected as one system. So it's pulling fume cupboards from, you know, hundreds of labs all going out the same stack on top of the building. So it's a case of, you know, how it, how would you go about testing a system like that when you've got hundreds of fume cupboards and safety cabinets all linked to the same LEV system going out one stack of the building across multiple floors. Which is also normally connected to the air handling unit and the central vacuum as well. Uh, well, yeah, I think I think the supply air is separate. That'll have its own HVAC system from what I've gathered so far. But certainly the, the general extract out of the building is shared with the LEV from fume cupboards and it's it's you know i don't think that's ever been considered in terms of you know is there other factors as well that you know filtration before you can point out the stacks and you're mixing it with powders and fumes and i don't like i say it's just 
lack of, of knowledge about LEV systems, which I think has never been there. Yeah. Also, also on, on, on um, installations like you have, Stuart, they, 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 there's often um, diversity that's inbuilt into the design yeah. and um, variable air volume control. And yeah, that, that adds another dimension into how the test becomes difficult to do because um, yeah. the, the user has to be aware of that diversity and they also have to be aware about where, where variable where volume control can affect it because many fume cupboards will contain even with velocities down at 0.3 meters per second. But, but what happens is once somebody starts to interact with that device, move in and out and away from it, you get yeah. break out of the fume and it takes that 0.3 meters per second twice as long as it would take 0 0.4, 0 0.5 meters per second to recapture and stabilize itself. So yeah. you are right. It does become it does become difficult because when you're doing the testing, you have to look at the whole building and try and work out how you can effectively work on each floor, perform your test without obviously uh, prejudicing the work that's going on the floors above. Yeah, and that, that's <laughs> it's still still. I mean, it started there in October, um, and that's you know one of my first things that I picked up on is obviously one they're not doing the LEB systems as a whole or never you know not done any uh or examinations and obviously how on earth they're going to do that purely because you know essentially you'd have to check every lab every floor in one go which you'd, you'd need hundreds of lev engineers to do it all at once and it's just not feasible so and again obviously you know that people can be moving things about opening and closing fume cupboards and dampers adjusting while you're doing it so it's the case of you know how how would you even begin to do a test that large um and you know the only kind of feasible way i can see it being done in, in my head at the moment in time is you'd have to possibly just do each lab one at a time per lab as a report and then collectively put them reports together somehow um, to get a full overview of the whole building <clears throat> but it's a tough one. My thoughts on that one is that yeah, frequency would probably have to increase as well. Not just doing it annually, but increase the frequency to to try and minimise that risk for potential of lack of control or loss of control due to some other factor. So the more you're testing it, the higher frequency. The you're not going to eliminate it, but you have you're reducing the potential. Of the risk there as well. Yeah, yeah. So we obviously we are doing the six and the annual monthly tests at the uh, on the capture devices and fume hoods and and safety cabinets. But um, you know, another factor is that you know under under well, obviously we need to be doing weekly inspections, which I think again has never been done. Um, and again, to implement something like that is, you know, there's, there's thousands of assets across the site that are attached to LEV systems. So if you wanted to do a weekly inspection of all of them, it's it's another four or five men just to be doing that every week, going round, looping and looping and looping. Stuart, do you have wind responsive discharge um, stacks where you are or are they just standard? Uh, I'm not. I couldn't tell you at the moment in time. I, I don't really know. Um, I've not really had much chance to get up to sort of where the stacks oh, are, but okay. I believe it's just as a bank of, let's say, eight fans, and obviously they'll adjust depending on the demand of what's being used throughout the building. Without going down a rabbit hole and picking Stuart's system to bits. Um, <laughs> Adrian. Classic, classic example of a, a you know, big complex system um, which if we're going to go and test is going to take you know tons of man hours to, to go and take all the various readings I've often thought when I was used to do building services and look at boiler systems we'd have um, low pressure hot water systems and you can put a pitot tube in them and measure you'd have a pressure gauge on and you just measure you monitor the pressure gauges why are we not putting fixed pressure gauges on systems across fans, across filters, across certain points in the ducting? So, you know, we talk about measuring static pressure, take one reading in the pipe and rest it. 
why don't we have a gauge fitted there permanently so we can just go and look at it and that way you know that will make these tests so much more simpler do we need if you put a gauge on something you can then link it back to a control system you can have remote monitoring so doubling yeah, up those those results basically could you could have the results ping through to you onto a, a spreadsheet onto a website or you can just dial in and monitor it we need to look at the bigger picture with these systems i know we're talking about testing but it's also people on here who design systems and we should be you know we've talked about it several times the designs are poor with led systems we need to be going back to that design stage and making sure they're right and improving the standards that will make testing simpler and better yeah I mean, one, of, one, one of my arguments as well was you know it, there's a there's obviously going to be a lot of projects works that they carry out on the on the site um you know one of the comments i made was you know instead of trying to put everything through the same stack or you know the same bank of fans you know it's probably a good idea to start considering any newer laboratories that they're doing up is there they make them independent because it's going to make control and testing and design is much more simpler when you're coming to do your 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 tests and your examinations but again it's it comes down to you know it costs and and practicalities and limit limitations which obviously can be a struggle to to argue the case i think you hit the nail on the head it's cost and it's, it's not so much cost retrospectively cost at the initial outlay time you know when people are buying these systems the capital cost the capital expenditure is always driven down so therefore you don't get any bells and whistles you don't get any frills with it people are going for a cheap option because it's just extraction it just sucks why do they do that because of lack of education to understand actually you need to have control yeah these systems are critical in that they keep people alive they stop people getting horrible diseases and yet we scrimp on them. You know, the, so how do we change that view of LEV? How do we get people to appreciate what it is? Yeah, yeah, totally agree. It's, it's, it's trying to get people to understand that, that it's more than just extract. That bottle's taken down, isn't it? It's all gone silent. <laughs> <laughs> well, that happy, cheery note, yay. Everyone's contacting Stuart <laughs> to see if they can work on his site, that's why. <laughs> Is it? <laughs> <coughs> Sounds like you've got your work cut out, Stuart. Yeah, well, it's, it's funny, you know, that you, that, that you say that. I think um, I was having a com I think you know I was having a couple of messages on with Adrian on on LinkedIn the the fact that we they used to be LEV engineers on site well they classed themselves as LEV engineers but you know they no longer work there um, and were forced to have contractors on site to be doing the fume cupboards and safety cabinet testing um, and obviously trying to hire new people and train them up and, and get a better quality and standard of of testing on site but you know trying to put all the new methods and in place and making sure things are right and like you said uh, that's been mentioned already is there's lack of you know risk assessments and commissioning data everything that's been covered um is just a lack of it um and you wouldn't you wouldn't think that in this day and age especially for a large company as it is well, it's easy for you, Stuart. All you do is you set all your fume cupboard performances at 0 0.01 ppm because the method of detection and the procedure to, to perform that um, testing, you can only ever, the best you will ever get is 0 0.01 ppm. So if you're in doubt, just set 0 0.01 ppm and they just wait people running around to try and find it. <laughs> it works. Yeah. If you follow the EM14175, if you follow the test procedure, use the detection equipment, and also you use the method of doing the calculation and presenting the results, the best number you will ever see on your report 
is 0.01 ppm. That, that will always be the, the best number you will see on your report. So if ever you're in doubt, just ask for 0.01 ppm and then, then let people speak to you about what they're going to do about it. Yeah. We've got quite a lot of end users in the group as well. Is there, there any questions? You've got designers, testers, occupational hygienists online. Anyone got any questions? Yeah. That's maybe one of the, the issues we've got. We've got purchases and yeah. uh, sites not asking enough questions, maybe. I've got to go, but um, thank you very much. It was lovely to see you all again, and I thought it was really useful. It's good to see my sister in months. Hi, <laughs> <laughs> Hazel. See you, Catherine. Thank you for joining us. See Bye, you. Catherine. Bye. See you, Catherine. Cheers, Catherine. Bye-bye. Bye. I think one positive to take out of this is the fact that everyone in here wants to do better, uh, whether you work for a company, whether you're a tester, an occupational hygienist, or you own and run a company. Um, there's a positive that we, we're all wanting to go in the same direction and, and up the standards and the levels of what's going on in the industry. Um, I can't say that for everybody else in the industry, of course, because there are companies out there that aren't willing to learn and progress and move forward. So fair play to everyone who, who's in here now that, that want to all move in the same direction. Yeah, we're probably already talking to the converted you know, we're not perfect, but we are trying to do the best and educate and get the best out of the industry. So we're probably not reaching the people that we need to reach, really. Yeah, that's the point, I think, Louise, that, you know, those that are on this um, call today are aware of what the, the issues are. They're also aware of probably some of the uh, remedies, but it, it, it's getting the wider the wider audience to to listen in I, I don't know perhaps we could we Definitely. could do a huge seminar and just have all of all these same faces on there just let people listen in for an hour just to see what goes on and I can try and perhaps get a better feel for how difficult it is for the LEB engineer it, unless he's supported by those that are actually asking him to do the work because if I make a little part, I'm really new to the industry. I've been only in it for about a year now and working in the contracting and installation side. And it seems like the, the LEV testing installation is seen as two really different roles in a company. And you don't really get as much insight into the other side of the table. So integrating the two a bit more, working west left like two different things would be quite useful for installers. They, they, do you see what I mean? Yeah, a company that can install, design, and be able to test it is kind of like what you want, ideally. But on the other hand, that, that's something we offer, but on the other hand, we're not very keen on promoting any of you testing our own designs because then, although we're obviously very professional and we will um, test properly and we'll go through snag lists and correct them because we want that, that quality, there's, with some companies, there's a a pass kind of culture um mm. they can't possibly fail it because it might upset the boss um, I, think, I think what what I, what are probably more members like the, the installers seem to talk amongst themselves the testers talk amongst themselves and there's not as much collaboration uh, as in making sure the installers doing something that the testers think it is right for them uh, that makes sense I think group, groups like this really help, Oliver. I mean, the, the guys on here, we've, we've known each other for quite a while now and we do ping each other questions and, and ask questions, you know, that we're, you know, related to, to systems that you might not uh, might not understand. So, yeah, but I think this, this is a great thing with the LEV Central group and not being afraid to ask those questions. Yeah, and getting more installers into it, trying to force them to listen to it. Yes. <laughs> I think that that... that feedback loop is really important because if you are installing you, you need to know each other's requirements and I have found that when when a system's installed particularly things like food sites or pharmaceutical sites ideally those test points need to be in that ductwork before it's put into place on the site 
because if you install a system they start putting product through, they're not going to let you drill a hole in it. So when these installations go in, they need to be installed so that they can be tested. And it's getting that communication between the two. If you're an installer, understanding what the requirements of the tester is going to be once it's installed. Or in our case, getting the test point in the right bloody place. Yeah. <laughs> you can ask for test points and you get to say, like, oh, God. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I used to go around with a marker pen for the customers and say it needs to be here because they wouldn't allow us to do it. I'd say, well, that's OK. As long as you get it done, this is where they need to be. Go around with a marker pen. <laughs> Yeah, that's a biggie. Gareth, going back to what you were saying earlier, though, I think you're right in that there's a lot of people not on this group, but our view certainly is that if we just keep getting better and better. They'll, they'll either raise their standards, they'll be forced to, or they'll fall out of the industry, which is what we want for some of them at the, the bottom. I think that that's all we can do is just keep striving to get better and better with it um, through collab collaborations like this. That definitely helps. We haven't got to lose sight as well that as an industry, we've come a long, long way in the last um, 10, 12, 15 years. I mean, Bill, when you started doing 601 back in 2005, 2006, I mean, before then there wasn't very much. And now we have you know, lots of people who have some qualifications who have more awareness. Um, we are raising the bar. There's more guidance out there now than there ever has been. Um, there's, there's help and support in places like Visa. There's the documents such as TR40 available. There's, um, there's a wealth of stuff on the internet, none of which was there before. So it is getting better. Um, it's just, you know, we want it to go a lot further. Uh, it will take time and we just need to keep chipping away at it as an industry. Thing is, nobody's perfect. And each uh, individual on here, the companies you work for and, and yourselves, we're not all going to be doing everything perfect uh, at any one time. And as long as we can all strive to move forward and do that and aim to bring your company up to a standard and bring each individual up then obviously that that's the the, the main aim isn't it really it's the consistency like hazel was saying earlier it's you know where you haven't got a a, a risk assessment we all agree that that that's a fail you know it's a, it's a fail or a not determined um you can't pass a system without identifying the hazardous substances so it's things like that it's, it's getting that consistency across the group um so that you know we go from there that, that, it has to be that way i think um, can I just ask Adrian, are there any sort of movements forward about looking at maybe some sort of way of having an apprenticeship scheme for LEV or something like that? Because I know that is another issue where we've got a lot of LEV testers that are not getting it right. We've got newbies coming into it and they're doing the P601, but they're working for these companies that really they're not getting the influence that they need. Have we got some way of an overall, other than just the P601, P602, of kind of getting these engineers trained up? So um, there, uh, yes, uh, in answer to your question, there is the iLevy competency scheme, uh, competency card, which talks about what people need to do, to what competency looks like and they can apply for. Uh, iLevy has also spoken to Visa about um, bringing in apprenticeships. Uh, now, that means the BOHS uh, P-series qualifications need to be aligned with the NOS, the National um, uh, Occupational Standards, which unfortunately they're not. So we're in the process of getting that aligned. Um, once that is done, then BISA uh, will be able to set up apprenticeships for LEV work. But you are looking at years right. um, before that's done, uh, unless anybody else wants to volunteer and help out. I'm quite happy to be <laughs> so, so, yes and no. Yes, it is being yeah. it is happening, but like all these things, it will take time. Yeah. Um, because we just need more people to come out, come forward, and help do that. Right. We go back to recirculating units. If, uh, in the absence of anything else from anyone else and just see what, what people's thoughts are on those how are, you, how are you testing them are you testing them with a handheld are you doing air sampling what any so the say for the portable welding units for example well i'll do a visual i'll pull the filters out first check that the clean side is clean um and then i'll put it all back together 
and on the outlet I used as a handheld Casella Microdust uh, Micro Pro or um, I've got a um, a piece of kit that I got from Bill that's wonderful as well and just see if there's any particular when they're welding coming through but it needs to be when they're welding uh, I've seen LEV testers on site they're using these particle counters but the process isn't isn't happening so there's no particulate being handled by the filter so you're not getting a real-time snapshot of what's going on. Louise do these Casella instruments need setting up originally for what the particulate is? Uh, not the one I've got. It's purely indicative hazel and this is the, yeah. the issue we've yeah. got it's just you know if you go back to the the ACOP it's non-specific it's air sampling at the recirculatory exhaust outlet yeah. what does that mean um, you know checking concentrations so I guess it's, you know, you're looking for breakthrough, evidence of breakthrough, yeah. and th that's all you can do, isn't it? It's just a, just an indication compared to background levels for us. Yeah, I, I'm kind of at a loss on this one because in terms of the cost regulations and then the guidance in there, it states that there should be information available with respect to an LEV on the efficiency of the filter and any um, contaminant coming through. But it's that age-old... I talked a lot about the visual observations. To me, a visual observation isn't enough. And and we can't, I'm kind of getting the message. I don't know if other people are getting the message that as an LEV tester, you use a dust lamp or a smoke test for a visual observation. However, a filter, if it's recirculating, all of a sudden we need sampling data. So why, why do we need sampling data at the outlet, but not at the inlet, at the hood, and vice versa? should we have sampling at the inlet as well as at the outlet and we're kind of we've got again one of those big gray areas what should we be doing in terms of just reading in the regulation it does say um about the concentration of contaminant in the exhaust air it's not particularly listed in the elements of the lev test it just says what should be available in respect to it so it's not clear does it have to be done at every test and what do people think about, well, we're saying we only need visuals at the hood where you've got more chance of getting exposed. However, we do we need sampling and some sort of sampler at the outlet? I, I'm a bit sort of confused over those ones and what do other people think? Uh, we've done some tests recently. I did some looking at uh, using a, a dust track and some portable extractors, brand new portable extractors we had in the stores and i tried it first of all with smoke and it was getting very very high readings coming out of the exhaust my problem was i didn't know what concentration was going in uh, at the first place i then got one of our engineers to carry out some welding uh, on a, a brand new system and i was getting about uh, 13 milligrams out of the exhaust which was quite scary yeah um, in an ideal situation, and it's going back to what uh, Melvin was saying about having a known concentration going into your hood to try and see what the, you know, to measure efficiency of the filter is really about trying to see what's going in and what's come back out. Uh, and, you know, I thought at first I could perhaps use, a, when I use a, a smoke machine, when I use one of the little mini pea soup ones, um, it doesn't last, it's the, the sort of quick dispersing. I think the smoke is broken up in the filter. If I use one of the larger units uh, we use for doing clearance tests, the smoke comes straight out of the, the exhaust. Uh, when I test with weld fume, uh, a large amount is coming out as well. So it's, it's so difficult to try and, try and actually gauge in the real world. Uh, and I was, well, that's a brand new filter. I don't know whether over time, if that filter was decoated or had been in use for some time, whether the efficiency would get better. So testing filters in situ, there are standards, especially for HEPA filters. There's, there's the ISO yes. uh, standards, which we, we should be doing. And I know we're not, as an industry we're not, because the test kit is so bloody expensive that none of us would get any work if we did it. Um, I think it is more popular in the sort of recirculating fume covered industry, uh, which Melvin can probably tell us more about. Um, but for your, your weld fume units to control the smoke, they should ha be having sort of HEPA level filtration. So should we be doing um, 
the ISO standard HEPA filter test to, to challenge that filter, not just the filter, but the sealing and the seating of the filter as well. Um, but then will customers pay the five, six, seven hundred thousand pound, whatever it's going to cost per filter to do that test? No. Do we need some guidance as an industry on what we do do to test these filters? So the has concerns about it, hence why they put the, the, the post out there to look at recirculating filters. Sorry, um, Adrian, I just, uh, just wanted to say goodbye. So I've got a lot to shoot off now, I've got, uh, got a meeting, but thanks for everybody's time. Uh, appreciate everyone doing the talk. Bye, Gareth. Hey, Gareth. Cheers, Gareth. Gareth. Thanks. Um, just to pick up on something that Hazel said earlier, a lot of people are using a TSI dust track or the Casella Microdust Pro. Uh, these units have a calibration tube that goes into it so you can calibrate it each time before you use it. What people don't realize it's calibrated on Arizona road dust, whatever the heck that is. Um, and it does say that you're supposed to um, you're supposed to calibrate it on the typical dust that you will be dealing with. Of course, then that becomes a problem for LEV testers that every system and every client they go to, it's a different material. So they can only ever be indicative. Um, I think the, the problem the problem I see is that um, there there are very there is a very small percentage of recirculating filters that are actually being tested at the initial th or, or routine thorough examination test, um, and I would like to see at least something started across the board where people do something on these recirculating filters because the majority are not doing anything. I know you guys are probably um, uh, doing something as you go around. The other thing that Adrian mentions, the DOP testing, I think the problem might be the access to be able to carry it out in the way in which it's currently set out um, in, the, uh, in the standard. Um, and therefore, we would need to try and maybe um, amend it and adjust it to suit the type of situations that we might come in. Um, and then we move to the one that's in Melvin's area is the carbon filtration on recirculating fume covers is just not being done. Very, very few people are doing it, yet it ought to be done. Um, we, um, Mark and I were involved in a situation where um, a guy was doing testing, nothing to do with us. He was doing the testing on a recirculating filter. And he, he, he spoke to us and said, what should my protocol be for testing? And I think this is something we should all do and we should all do it more frequently. I said, go back to the manufacturer, ask them for the protocol, put down that you've actually asked the manufacturer for the protocol. For goodness sake, if the manufacturer can't give you the protocol for testing, who, who can? Uh, the manufacturer in this particular case come back and said, oh, you'll smell it before it's of any problem. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we, pass, we passed that one to HSE. Um, so we do need to think about what we are doing and we need to do something and um, not just for the, um, the particular one, which I know is an issue in welding and, and the gases, but also in laboratories where these um, small recirculating fume cupboards are used um, quite frequently. I don't think, incidentally, I don't think you'll get um, um, a guidance standard from HSE anytime soon. I think they've been gathering information, but I just think everything's been pushed back and back. So I don't think there'll be anything soon. But th they did say to me, but we do expect them to be doing something and to be able to demonstrate to us the the, the basis on which they're doing that test. It's kind of, and, and, and that's very typical of guidance these days. It's basically over to you. We want you to do something. Show us what you're doing, but justify why you're doing it in that way. Can I just ask everybody's opinions on these um, wood dust systems, these in internal sort of recirculating um, sock filters? Because again, it's an asthmogen, wood dust, potential of cancer as well. And we've got these recirculating systems. And currently, the only guidance, there used to be a lot of guidance um, for wood dust systems. The only two left, 23 and 32, I think it is. 
um, all talk about these SOP filters. So can we pass them? Do we have to fill them? Because they do let the respirable dust through. I think we've we've seen that already. What do people think? Louise has sent me some fun photographs of using a particle counter when they've been switched on. You want to comment on that, Louise? Oh, yeah, the, the dust passing through is through the roof. I'll post it on the NEV Central group. Um, it's using, is it the HT900, Bill? The very cheap, nasty, disposable Chinese thing, which is better than nothing, but it's got a little a little bar that uh, it gives you an indication. Like You've got a to be very. Light. Yeah, you got it. Be very careful. It gives an indication in micrograms. So if I run it in my office here, it'll tell me I've got 24, and it isn't milligram per meter cubed. It's micrograms. So you have to divide it by a thousand. But there's a little bar at the top which is traffic light color. And Louise sent me some pictures where the little cursor goes off scale when you switch them on. Yes. Yeah. And that was when it first balloons up, so it kind of puffs it all out, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, to be fair, it might well settle after that, but it does show that the respirable dust just happened to have one here. Don't know if it'll fire up. If anybody can see, it's a cheap little device. Um, and you can see the color bar. Oops, I've got it, my camera the wrong way. You can see the color bar on the top and the little cursor going across. Um, and it's simply just an on-off run. You can't calibrate them. Um, uh, I, I spoke to HSC about them. I'll actually start it running. Um, and they said, that's fine, as long as you make it absolutely abundantly clear that it's an indicative indicate, you know, it's an indicative test that you're doing. Uh, I don't know if it will focus, but it's actually showing a <coughs> countdown in seconds at the bottom. And it will eventually give me, an, oh, there it goes, an interim reading. I can't see it in reverse. It's uh, 63. It's got very dusty. So it's 0.063 in my office at the moment, um, or plus or minus 20% to say. But you can see that the actual cursor started coming off the green. Now, when Louise used something like this, I don't know, Louise, it gave you something like 57,342, and yeah. that cursor went off scale. So that's the kind of the recirculating um, sock positive sock filters. 20,102 on PM10. <laughs> oh, there you go. Oh, you've got I'm to divide it by now. a thousand, but it's still 20 milligram per meter cube, Louise. Um, so, yeah. I think going back to the question when you're using those hanging bag sock filter units, what is reasonably practical? If it has to be reduced by a LARP, if you've got a, a factory, a workshop which has an investment and they're putting in a system, which is there to stop someone getting a life-threatening disease like asthma or cancer, is it reasonably practical for them to put in a system that works and doesn't put research dust back into the working environment? Um, when you're looking at the long-term picture, these units, unfortunately, a lot of people buy them on short-term um, returns, when in fact they should be purchased over a, a 10, 5, 10, 15 year purchase. So I think you can argue that it's reasonably practical to put in the right type of system and not a hanging sock unit uh, on fine dust. If they're used on chippings and shavings, probably not a problem. But if they're on fine sawdust, personally, I, I don't think I've ever passed one yet. Would, would you put the same argument forward for the welding, the portable welding fume units and Adrian as well yeah. on that basis? Yeah, very much so, Mark. See, it's back to it's it's ALARP, and you're 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 stepping into the definition of ALARP, and you're defining it for the client, aren't you? It's it's got to come from them, really. That's the issue. Um, you can nudge them in the right direction and say, you know, based on what we see, we don't feel you should be using that. But it's it's ALARP, and it's that 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 unknown quantity of you know what what's reasonably practicable for one isn't necessarily the same for another. Um, no, you're right. And, you know, it depends on the process and the application and, and what they're doing. And, you know, like I said earlier, if it's small routine maintenance work, then it, it may well be suitable. It's better than nothing, you know. But if, if it's a large process and it's all day, every day, it probably isn't suitable. It's back to exposure potential, isn't it? And, and the risk yeah. and air sampling and, and demonstrating back to your risk assessment, what is the exposure risk? But see, we will be viewed upon as the experts. That's why they're calling 
us in to do their testing. You know, that's what you go on people's websites who do testing. They're all experts. They've all got their, they're all testing to P, P601 standards or they all have BOHS qualifications. Half of them put on the side of their van that their BOHS or HSE approved. They will be seen as the experts. So if that's the case, we need to go in and, and give that expert opinion, give that view, give people the information they need to make the right decisions. Excuse me, gentlemen, I've, I've got to leave. So I want to thank everybody for a very, very productive couple of hours. I've learned a lot. <laughs> yeah, so thanks. thanks, everyone. And could I thanks, just, just could I just say to Stuart before I leave, Stuart, the value is less than 0 0.01 ppm because obviously it can be below 0 0.01 ppm. So yeah. just write that on your card and you'll be safe, mate. Goodbye, everybody, and thank you very much. Thanks, Melvin. Thank you. Yeah. Bye, Melvin. Am I right in thinking most of the, the cloth units, you can retrofit a HEPA on top as well? Some of them have a, an adapter. You can now fit HEPAs to some of these cloth units. Yeah, it's an interesting point, Mark, because um, HSC and even the P601 teaching expectations are that if you have a bag filter that's going to recirculate and it's been taken in obviously dust, um, that it should be HEPA to H13 standard. And that's on one hand, and how do they get away with these inflatable bags? They're, they're nothing like anywhere near H13 standard. But it's but not just inflatable bags. In schools, um, particularly around us and in Shropshire and um, North Wales, the high schools are being littered with these underbench dust extraction systems mm. with just polyester needle felt filtration. There's no HEPA filter, and every time you test one, 90% of the systems are passing dust back into the, the classroom. I mean, I know it's not so much a risk to the children that are in there because they're not in there long enough, but the teachers and the technicians, they're in there breathing that in all day. Mm. And they're not tested properly. The doors are never taken off. And then yep. we come in and we fail everything. Like, well, hang on, it passed, passed last year. Goes back to mis-selling. Well, the last three court cases I was involved in as an expert were all in schools or colleges, and it was all staff from the schools and colleges that got asthma in all three cases. Are they public knowledge, Bill? Is that something um, we could share with the schools? That we yeah, no, the, because they were only high court cases, um, crown court cases, they, weren't, they didn't go at the Court of Appeal, they didn't go at the House of Lords. Um, they, there's nothing to stop them being reported, but almost certainly they weren't reported. It's a voluntary thing. Reporting of court cases is voluntary. And most of the reporting organizations like Lexus, Nexus and so on, um, they'll only do it for court of appeal and, high co and House of Lords Supreme Court cases. It's almost like we could do with some ammo almost mm. in schools. Um, there seems to be some confusion, particularly if they're run by um, a central county hall or something. Um, the schools don't seem to take responsibility for the LEV because they say, oh yeah, the central county council should take care of that. And mm. you just go in circles. Well, that was uh, the last one I went to was, it was a lady cleaner in Darwin. I'll name it, it was Darwin. Um, and she went in and cleaned at the end of the working day, but then the evidence came out, she had to go back in and clean before they started the next morning. And there were, she was asked why she had to go back in the next morning. She said there was a whole load of dust on all the workbenches and surfaces um, the next morning that I had to clean off again. And of course, that was respirable dust settling out. <laughs>